A recent collection of essays has ignited debate about whether psychiatrists should comment on a president's mental health if they believe it could represent a threat to public safety. The book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, has highlighted what some see as a conflict between the American Medical Association's Principles of Medical Ethics, which state that physicians have a duty to promote public health and safety, and the American Psychiatric Association's so-called Goldwater Rule, which says that it's unethical for psychiatrists to offer diagnostic opinions about persons they haven't examined. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Claire Pouncey, a psychiatrist at Eudaimonia Associates. Dr. Pouncey has written a perspective article about professional ethics and public safety. Dr. Pouncey, the book you describe in your article was published in October, so what kind of response has it generated since then in the medical community? It's generated a great deal of response in the community at large. In the medical community, I think people are talking more and more about the responsibility of mental health providers to inform the public about the mental health of the president. But in the community at large, there is much more discussion about whether mental health professionals should have any say at all about public figures and their mental status. So what do Dr. Bandy Lee and the other essay authors in the book see as the goal of raising these concerns about President Trump? Who would be responsible for looking into those concerns? I read them as sounding what they see as a genuine alarm about the mental health of the president. I see them as upholding Section 7 of the Code of Medical Ethics for physicians in general, which says that physicians, all physicians, not just mental health providers, have an obligation to maximize public health and safety and to speak out where they see threats to that safety. These authors genuinely see themselves as calling attention to what their professional knowledge tells them is erratic behavior in a president who doesn't have control of himself, who's easily provoked, who has an inconsistent control of his own impulses, whose own ego leads him to do erratic things and to be self-promoting at the expense of others, and who is a real threat to public safety in the sense that he could put us in a nuclear war just by provoking North Korea or by acting impulsively, and that there is a real reason for psychiatry in particular to get involved or to inform the public because psychiatrists are trained to recognize the patterns of behavior that they see President Trump as exhibiting himself. So they see themselves as upholding Section 7, this obligation to uphold public safety, and they're using their own professional experience. Many of them are psychoanalysts who work a lot with character pathology and are writing pretty substantively in this book about what they see as the patterns of behavior that lead to their concern. So both the mental health professionals who are authors of this book and others have spoken out about the dangers they see in Trump's psychology, and they've brought up a long list of potential mental health-related diagnoses. Why do you think there's such a range of those diagnoses and a lack of agreement about what the concern might be? Well, I want to flippantly say because it's psychiatry and there are going to be as many diagnoses offered as there are psychiatrists in the room, but that's only partly not serious. The thing about psychiatry, as so many people recognize, is that we don't have the physical tests and the conclusive diagnostic options that other areas of medicine have. And some people use that as a reason to dismiss psychiatry completely. 
We in psychiatry do not. We're a developing science. We're getting better and better at honing in on the patterns of behavior that we describe, at clarifying what we mean by specific diagnoses. And there is some overlap between different patterns of behavior and the treatments that can be used to address those patterns of behavior where treatment is an option. But what happens in this book is that there are really only two kinds of pathology that are described. One is personality disorder or personality pathology, where there's a lot of overlap among the different personality disorders. But mostly people are describing, these authors are describing narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic personality characteristics and antisocial personality characteristics. And there really isn't, even in the most formal diagnostic sense, a whole lot of difference between those. And the other class of disorders is neurodegenerative disorders, the dementias. And a couple of the authors are talking about the decline in the president's speech and the decline in his memory and things like slurring his words during broadcasts and how that might indicate a serious problem with cognitive degeneration over time. And those are the two big sorts of diagnostic classes that these authors bring up, but drawing on their own observations of President Trump's public behaviors and speech acts, they come to their own conclusions about which sorts of character pathology or neuropsychiatric pathology is most likely. They focus on different things. But there really aren't a lot of different options presented. There's a lot of uniformity. In your article, you described the origins of the Goldwater Rule when Fact Magazine published an informal survey of psychiatrists' opinion about the mental stability of Barry Goldwater, who was a presidential candidate. How is the current speculation about Trump's mental health different from that case? Well, the setting is very different. The Goldwater article in Fact Magazine was part of a whole campaign that was being run calling Goldwater crazy. And crazy meant something very different at the time. Like now, it was a colloquial term, and it was meant to be disparaging. But the whole campaign platform of the opposition was meant to discredit him by trying to make it sound like he didn't have any good judgment that would make him fit for a presidential role. And Fact Magazine did this really muckraking sort of survey to try to enlist mental health professionals to their own aim of supporting the Democratic candidate and discrediting Senator Goldwater by getting them to do their work for them and buying into this campaign strategy that said that he was mentally unfit. What was interesting about the Fact Magazine survey is that they polled 12,000 or so psychiatrists. They got about a 20% response rate, which anyone who's ever been involved in any kind of survey work knows is a terrible, terrible response rate and shouldn't be taken seriously at all. Of that 20% response, only about half of those said anything that could be construed as saying Goldwater was unfit. About another 5% said that they didn't have enough information about Goldwater to say anything at all. And another 5% said he was fine, that he was perfectly fit to serve as president. And because it was a magazine and not any kind of psychiatric or medical journal, they just published the ones that they thought were the most damaging to Goldwater. And it was nothing like a scientific survey. But it was very embarrassing for psychiatry. And, of course, there was a lawsuit where Goldwater sued Fact Magazine and ultimately put them out of business. And it was real egg on the face of psychiatry, as I certainly sympathize with and I certainly understand 
I can imagine that there were many people who wished that they hadn't responded to it at all in retrospect. But some of the responses to the Goldwater survey, in fact, magazine, are quite similar to the kinds of things we read in the press now about Trump, and especially during his campaign. Lots of the Goldwater comments are very similar to things that members of the press or members of the public who are not psychiatrists have been writing about Trump. So it's not that there was unique psychiatric knowledge being conveyed in that fact survey. It's that the condemnation being expressed in some of those quotations was particularly partisan. I think that what's different now, and especially in this dangerous case book, is that there isn't any overt partisanship involved. These are professionals who are talking about dangerousness. Their focus is not on diagnosis. They're not emphasizing the disparaging nature of being crazy. They're not making any blanket comments about how any kind of mental illness makes someone unfit for a particular social role. They're not saying anything condemning about how having any kind of mental illness makes it inappropriate for someone to hold a job or makes a person incapable of fulfilling social roles, as many, many people with mental disorders do. They're really trying to respect people with mental disorders. They're not being disparaging and they're not using diagnoses as epithets. They're really saying, in the case of this one person, we're very concerned that based on these publicly observable behaviors, he's on a dangerous path and we all need to be concerned. So going back to the AMA ethics principles, the relevant section states that a physician shall recognize the responsibility to participate in activities contributing to the improvement of the community and the betterment of public health. How's that traditionally been interpreted? Has it ever been invoked to argue that a person in power isn't fit because of medical reasons? I really don't know that it has. I've been studying the Goldwater Rule for about a decade now, and people have always laughed at me that I found one little esoteric area of ethics to focus on that nobody was interested in and just kind of had my little quiet area of study. But to my knowledge, there was never any controversy about Section 7 and this warning for public safety purposes. And to my knowledge, there were never any big controversies even about the Goldwater Rule. Section 7 in psychiatry has mainly been utilized for purposes of public education to help the public understand when a public figure, whether it's a celebrity or an actor or a politician, comes to the limelight for acting erratically or in a socially unexpected way, psychiatrists are called upon sometimes by the press to say, what is going on? Should we be afraid in this case? Is this mass shooter going to affect other people? And are we going to have copycat situations? And psychiatrists are in a good position to say, in this particular case, this person suffered from this kind of a problem. It's not likely to happen again. People aren't likely to imitate it. And it's been very educational. And the annotations that the APA provides are meant to say, don't speak in the name of all of psychiatry. Don't make it sound like we as psychiatrists have knowledge about all things. Don't overstep our roles. Be humble. Be plain. And don't say more than we're really entitled to say based on what we actually know. And I concur with all of that. I don't recall if I said it in my article, but I actually uphold the Goldwater Rule. I try to be very respectful of the APA's concerns, and I try to be very respectful of my patients and other people with mental illnesses. And I think it's very important for psychiatrists to make clear that we don't think we know everything. We don't read minds. We're not psychic just because we're psychiatrists. 
and that there are limitations to what we can know. But when the APA makes such a point of enforcing the Goldwater Rule, they seem to assume that there are certain psychiatrists who are political to the exclusion of being anything else or that any psychiatrist who feels compelled to speak publicly is self-aggrandizing in some way or self-promoting. And I simply don't know that that's true, and I don't know why they would assume it. From reading the Dangerous Case book, I certainly didn't get that impression of my colleagues who authored it. So to that point, finally, in an accompanying letter, Lieberman writes that psychiatry's made too many missteps in the past to engage in political partisanship that he would consider disguised as patriotism. So how can we be sure that the current evaluation of Trump's mental health doesn't represent one of those missteps? How does the psychiatry community know when making public claims like these is justified? Well, he didn't make his point completely. We all know that psychiatry has colluded with the People's Republic of China in suppressing the voices of political dissidents and that psychiatrists during the Weimar Republic colluded with torturing Jews and participating in some of the eugenic policies of Hitler. But what he's saying in his response to my perspective, you know, my perspective was just one tiny little essay that made two points. One, that we should be having discussion rather than suppressing discussion. And two, that in this one particular case where psychiatrists are concerned about the mental health of the president and whether he's too impulsive to be trusted with some of the really big decisions of the role, that section 7.3, this one annotation that the APA has added, is actually undermining section 7 and the overarching principle that applies to all physicians. In this one case, there seems to be a direct contradiction. So I made this very, very small claim. And he comes in and starts citing the sins of my fathers, which I'm aware of and concerned about, and that's part of why I uphold the Goldwater Rule. But he's talking about how a whole profession, by remaining silent, contributed to some pretty egregious, unprofessional behaviors. And I'm arguing that we should not be silent, that we should be bringing things to light, that we should be talking, not that we should be ousting the president as he characterizes my argument, which is not an accurate characterization, but that we should be talking. So he's saying that we should be silent, and that seems to be exactly what he's cautioning us that these other regimes had done, is silent psychiatrists. So I don't really understand the point he's making. Thank you, Dr. Pouncey.